Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Strength in the Numbers. Now recently I was given the privilege of speaking at a world first virtual global finance summit and the topic I was talking about was unlocking value creation and capture in finance and there was a lot of engagement during and after the event and I was asked could I share some of the insights on the show and uh, it's not our usual format, but I said, sure. So the the presentation was about 60 minutes long. And what I do is I split it up into two parts. The first one, which is what today's show is about, goes through the reasons why we find ourselves in a situation that finance is still looked as a cost center or an overhead, as opposed to a, a go-getter, value creator, and, and a function a able to go and capture value in organizations and sets the scene as to how we can perhaps develop a do-it-yourself approach to solving some of those challenges to become more like value creators as opposed to just simply preserving the value of our organizations and I make the distinction between the two and in the second part next week we'll go through some of the practical tools that we could all easily be using with very little effort to understand them it comes more in the application of them and with that focus on value creation and capture, we'll then start seeing our relevance and our ability to influence and have more meaningful careers within either practice or within our organizations as uh, finance professionals. And in return, probably have a lot of fun along the way as well. So look, hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please share it with your colleagues and friends and, and subscribe on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and YouTube. I really appreciate you investing your time with us today. So without further ado, over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this uh, first or first in a series anyway of these virtual world finance summits. I'm really excited to be part of this journey and hopefully today she'll leave you feeling a little bit better, feeling a bit more influential about how we in finance can unlock value creation and capture within our organizations and so go on to have more rewarding and fun careers within finance. And talking in terms of that journey, it's a bit like a navigation and navigating all what's going on around us. And, uh, you know, throughout our history, uh, you know, we, We've had fantastic navigators. We've had the likes of Christopher Columbus, uh, Sir Francis Drake, James Cook, even down to uh, the likes of Marco Polo. And in finance, we're pretty good navigators ourselves. We help our organizations navigate their way around the numbers, uh, solve challenges relating to numbers, figure out how to get from where we are to potentially go and achieve plans. And... Thinking that forward, I, I like to draw parallels between that and the role of navigators in aeroplanes. And uh, just going through on that one, oh, 
just trying to get the slides going. Good. So just going through that from a principle of navigation, believe it or not, when commercial air flight and air travel started, there was actually more than just two people in the cockpit. The captain and first officer were also joined by a flight engineer, a radio operator, and more often than not a navigator. And it was the role of the navigator to do the dead reckoning, to figure out where the, the plane was heading, and particularly going across oceans using the stars, the celestial motions, to figure out whether or not the plane was on track. And that was pretty much the way that it was up until uh, World War II, where advances in military technology and computer technology um, allowed some of the instrumentation, which up until then was very mechanical or electro, uh, analog electrical, uh, um, electromechanical, should I say. And with the advances in that technology, the instrumentation started being combined and replaced because up until then, any time you had a relay or switch, it reduced the reliability of the circuitry, the instrumentation, the indicators, and so on. So technology allowed it to be a bit more available to the rest of the cockpit and take less space. And in terms of that less space, then when planes were going across land, advances in things like what they call VHF, Omnidirectional Radio Range, VOR, meant that they didn't really need navigators across land, but still across oceans. So the role of the navigator became less important, and it even became less important still when the, the pilots sitting at the front of the cockpit were also becoming dual qualified as pilot navigators. And then that value proposition, um, the, the value being created by the navigator was being diminished still. And then with the introduction of satellites, there was really no need for the navigator. And you can imagine a finance professional advising the airline companies and saying, well, now that we don't have all that space and need the navigator, uh, actually, hang on a sec, why don't we sell that space as seats or maybe store some products we can go sell on the plane uh, during the flight? So you can sort of see how the role of the navigator gradually disappeared. And that's my concern for finance. I feel like we're sort of on the edge of a cliff at the moment, staring perhaps into a bit of an abyss. I mean, it's, it's quite stressful. There's an awful lot of things being fired at us, just like the navigators in the planes. Uh, you know, we've got technological advances uh, chipping away at the value proposition we've added historically. I mean, we've been fantastic at preserving value for, for many, many years safeguarding company assets but uh, increasing expectations on customers is another thing that's forcing us to probably do more and actually a lot of the time we're being asked to do more with less so it's quite a stressful environment so very hard to to figure it all out and and, and you know the, the thing for us now is unless we can start unlocking more value in our organizations on top of what we're already doing we're very much in danger of, of ceasing to be relevant and, and losing our historical level of influence in organizations, just like the navigator used to have in the cockpit of the plane. Now, don't want to paint a picture of doom and gloom so you leave this presentation. However, when you're, when you're, you're thinking about it, looking at the locks on this picture, that, though, that ability to unlock value comes in many different shapes, sizes, colors, and forms. And you know, tends to relate to the types of questions we ask of our organizations. But before we go into that, uh, let's go back to where it all started. You know, uh, finance professionals, accountants, you know, we've been going for the bones of 4,000 years. Indeed, you know, what I'm sharing with you now is a 
clay tablet that uh, was used to record financial transactions between two traders in ancient Babylon about 2000 BC so you know best part of 4000 years ago and since then as a profession we've developed a really cool skill set around safeguarding company assets recording transactions preserving value understanding data uh, improving the accuracy of information as well as its consistency so we've developed fantastic skill sets during that time um, however one thing that's become very apparent for us is that we've gone through a period without much in the way of change just like the rest of the world indeed our biggest innovation over the last few thousand years has been the the, the advent of double entry bookkeeping and in more recent times you've had a number of industrial revolutions that have increased the rate of change i mean if you look at look where we had some sort of key developments if you think spreadsheets started becoming more popular in the early 1980s and look at our other developments you know we've gone from spreadsheets to the introduction of robotic process automation in the last few years in one twentieth the time it's taken us to go from double entry to spreadsheets and at that rate of change is phenomenal obviously enabled by technology but an awful lot to keep up with particularly given historically we've not really been forced to have to change too much so we're going from this scenario, this mode of preserving values, our comfort zone, so to say, to now having expectations placed upon us to go and create and capture value. And that's tough. That's, that's very hard. Um, and you know, for some of us, it's forced us into survival mode. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's look back, since we're talking in historical terms here, let's look back to our ancient ancestors who used to live in caves. Um, they had fantastic survival modes. They, they developed what was known as the reptilian brain. It's sort of this mass of neurons that's at the top of the spinal cord at the bottom of the brain here. And in terms of the, how they developed that, it really signaled our flight and f fight and flight mechanism. So if we ever heard a rum rumble or rustle in the bushes, uh, then we would immediately prick up and, and sense danger. And it's a fantastic tool if you're, you're trying to run away from a tiger. But not so good if you're trying to respond to hundreds of emails a day or if you're trying to meet deadlines at month end or quarter end or trying to figure out and getting a financial model to work and project forward into the future um, being alert always on in survival mode is not very good for our physical or mental health and and, and what that does it increases our allostatic load and, and when that happens it's just a sense of a read on our stressors and our sense of threat and it means our reptilian brains, the, the bit that reacts very quickly in the space of two milliseconds, is always on and it's not leaving any space to, to use the, the mass that we've been developing since we've been living in caves, which is our sort of neocortex, allows us to think things through and, and, and figure out how to go and unlock and create value. So I, I believe with all the, the, the pressure on us, the rate of change, not just as finance professionals, but as the leaders of finance teams as well, we sort of retreating back a bit into our caves and going into survival mode and it's not a great place to be when we have all these things and increasing expectations and technology to go leverage around us so let's go back to the timeline i might have been a bit critical about us not being very innovative well if you look at in terms of our development there have been some innovations particularly in the more people orientated side uh, and strategic side. So if we look at FBP, Finance Business Partnering and FP&A, 
those, ta those, those terms were coined in the 1960s, so you know, over 50 years ago. But uh, we've been fairly slow to adopt them. I mean, if you look at finance business partnering, which is probably more of a mindset on how to unlock value and create influence, you know, that, that, I suppose, up until three years ago, there was no real books on the subject. You know, in the last few years, you could probably point to about four or five books on finance business partnering being avail available on Amazon. But there's still about 40,000 books on management and financial accounting. So we are innovating. It's just I don't feel we're probably coming out from our caves to take on some of these new concepts that will help us create and capture value in our organizations. And that's really where I love to think that we can move forward because we have to look at our value proposition. And um, we can do that by looking at what do businesses do in general and asking that question. You know, the purpose of a business, and we know this, is to go and create a customer. So ask ourselves, is preserving a value and safeguarding assets going to be creating customers into the future? And, and do they need humans to do that or would they better have technology do that? So we're starting to ask better questions. But again, if we're in survival mode and reptilian mode, we don't really have that capacity to ask questions. So the first step really here is to become a bit more aware that there is a lot going on and not only us as professionals but our leaders, um, it is difficult but we do need to start finding the space to ask these questions. And that's what we've been doing. We've been very good at asking questions throughout our history. You know, those questions typically start with figuring out what happens in our organizations, why things are happening, uh, even what's going on now and, and what might happen into the future. We've been very good at those. They're the sort of the preserving value questions. And I draw those on an insight productivity frontier that ultimately the aim is here is to try and get onto the next level of curve. It's that mix of complexity, cost and value. So if we can try and deliver a solution to our organizations and create customers in a way that minimizes the complexity or cost, uh, we get the chance to return even higher value. So if you think like the invention of spreadsheets, when that came along, that pushed these productivity frontiers outwards and upwards because it allowed us to achieve a lot more with the questions we were asking. But nowadays, when you know this technology is meeting humanity, we're in danger of being stuck in this navigator zone. This zone where if we keep asking the same questions and doing the same things, yes, they're still relevant at preserving value for our organizations, but it doesn't necessarily take human beings and qualified accountants or, or budding accountants to go ask those questions. They can be done in much more uh, cost-effective ways that unlock similar levels of value for organizations. So let's come back to the purpose of, of the business is to go create a customer. And how can we do that going forward? Well, we need to create and capture value, unlock that value for them by asking more valuable questions and using that navigator zone foundation to go do that. So coming out of our caves, asking what can be done and helping our organizations go deploy solutions to go execute on that. That's where more people and project management type skills will come into play. And, and this expression on business partnering is a key enabler in that as well. So, you know, if we do those things, and I know I'm painting a very simple picture so far because I, I want to set a high level before we get into the detail. We'll get more of what we want. And ultimately, I feel that talking to a lot of finance professionals, um, you know, the feedback I get from doing the podcasts as well, and a lot of advice from the guest mentors we have on the Strength in the Numbers show is that, you know, we'll get 
more meaningful and rewarding careers if we just go out and start creating value uh, more than what we have been doing and that will set us up very well for the future. Um, but value can be quite difficult to define in a way I guess because um, how do you say there's there's it's, it's, it's like a concept it's like an intangible you know I, I, I liken it to water have you ever tried to grasp running water and, and, and grab hold of it it can be quite difficult and, and I, I feel like there's the same challenge with understanding value um, it can be quite difficult so so the other thing with you know, trying to grab water is like like value. It's it's what it, like water. Value changes depend on the context we find ourselves in. So, imagine you're washing your lawn, and you want to keep your lawn nice, nice, clean, and green, and so on. Well, you probably don't place as much value on that water, uh, or any different value on that relative to maybe drinking your tap water. But let's say you go out later that evening to a restaurant and you're feeling a bit flush with cash. Sometimes we do that as finance professionals and we go order a well, premium sparkling water. We might part with a few bucks, uh, euros or pounds when we go do that. Um, and then you know, let's say we take a vacation to North Africa, uh, to the sort of Sahara area. And we go to a restaurant there because uh, we don't fancy the, the quality of the drinking water back at the hotel. So we might even pay a little bit more money then because we sort of don't particularly want to be getting sick or ill. And then the following day we find ourselves out in the desert in baking 40 degrees Celsius heat or 100 degrees plus Fahrenheit heat. And uh, we realize that we haven't brought any water with us. We're parched, we're thirsty. How much value do you think we place on water then? So you can sort of see the value of water changes depending on the, the context we find ourselves in. And the great thing as finance professionals is We've fantastic access to decision makers. We've got excellent access to data. So we're very well positioned to uh, align decision making, uh, the, the data with the decision makers context to go and provide value for them. So we're very well positioned to do this. And simply, how do we go and unlock value for our organizations into the future? Well, it's about helping them make better decisions over time, understanding their decision making context because they change and the value of those changes for each decision maker. But we're very well positioned to do this. So now that we're very well positioned to do this, we need to go action it and go go solve for this. And uh, one of the solutions I'm sort of seeing out there by our leaders in particular is they're telling us to go become better solvers of problems, um, be more commercial, get ahead of uh, the decision, get ahead of the problem, be more like consultant, less box ticking, yeah, be more strategic. I mean, that's great. And they're all very much behavioral things we need to change. Um, however, in survival mode, as we've already pointed out, right, we're still stuck a bit in our caves and we're not really giving ourselves capacity to figure out how do we need to change our behaviors, right? And, uh, you know, our leaders are very well-meaning, but uh, there are a lot of stresses on us and, and stress can be a very difficult thing. Uh, I remember working with a Scottish finance director, not to name any names, and we were in a meeting and he got so stressed, his eyeball popped out. And uh, you know, I bet you there's some other uh, fellow professionals, whether physically or mentally, you know, have, have nearly found themselves on the operating table. So I was curious to understand behavior change and how successful that would be, just telling people to change. So what better way to look at uh, some research on heart patients, people who had undergone heart surgery, 
and been given a second lease of life. Because if you think about it, these people have the ultimate incentive to change. You know, that second, you know, if they don't change and adopt a healthier behavior, their likely outcome is death. So anyway, when the researchers reported back their findings, how many people do you think actually changed their behavior being told to adopt a healthier lifestyle after having heart surgery? 90%, 80%? You might be shocked, but only one in nine. So about 11% actually cared to change their behavior, even being given a second chance at life. It's phenomenal, right? So what chances do you think we have as individuals when we try and change our own behavior in finance? Or even try someone else, try to change someone else's behavior, let alone have a finance leader try and change our behavior or change the behavior of an entire finance organization just by telling them it's probably not going to work or, or be as successful as perhaps some other methods. So that's what we're going to go on to next, some of these other how-to methods to unlock value creation. And again, I want to encourage us to draw from our strengths and go back to some fundamentals that we know, right? We all know this, income follows on from assets. And I fundamentally believe the challenges we have in finance today and how we go on to create and capture value is to look at our problems not as behavior, but as asset deficiencies. Because if you think about it, when we go to work every day, we leave our houses, they're an asset. When we come back home, they're still an asset. And I recently purchased a home, which is where we're broadcasting from, uh, finally, finally took the plunge, I guess. And, you know, uh, my partner, my wife, Katie, pointed out to me that we had a bit of a brown stain on the ceiling. And I said, oh, that doesn't look good. It's probably water damage. I'm not an expert in DIY. But uh, anyhow, we, um, you know, that could have been quite disastrous. So let me just play that one out forward. So let's say I go off to work and I'm thinking, I'll get to that another time. I'm pretty busy. I've got meetings to go to. I've got business partners to go help, deadlines and reports and analyses to go make sure are done. And um, I think I've had a pretty good day. And just before I'm about to leave the office, get a phone call from Katie. She's saying, ah, geez, uh, Andy, you need to get home very quick. There's a serious problem. I don't have time to talk. Just get home as fast as you can. I said, fine, okay. Uh, driving home, I'm thinking, what the heck's going on? Get home, met by a scene of absolute carnage, right? There's a big hole in the ceiling where we'd left. When I left this morning, there wasn't one. There's debris on the floor. There's water dripping down. I can already feel the damp. I can see Katie's absolutely stressed because the kids are running around absolutely, driving her insane, trying to play in and out the debris. And then I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I've got to go and fix this, uh, this issue that I didn't expect to have. And where am I going to get a contractor? And so on and so on. All because I didn't take the time to address the deficiency that I saw happening in the ceiling when I probably should have. Now, thankfully, it didn't play out like that. Um, I was able to get my dad in to go uh, fix it. Um, so, in effect, getting that contractor in. And then the other approach was the DOI bit in terms of painting over it afterwards. And what I'm about to suggest here is sort of a, is, is a do-it-yourself approach, right? Is we are all able and capable of fixing any asset deficiency we have in finance if we adopt the do-it-yourself approach. It just takes a bit of brain matter. It takes a bit of stepping out of our cave, stepping out of survival mode, being a bit more proactive. Yeah, there are behavioral changes, so I'm telling you to do them. But if you don't do them, um, you, you know, I say we've got we're threat of being very much irrelevant in our organizations. And um, to help you do them, I'm going to share some sort of tools that have worked from, from our background. Um, now, that said, there's also the contractor route or the contractor route. And, 
that's what I found, uh, you know, a lot of my understanding and learning from is I've combined with a number of partners. So if you want to uh, figure a way out using a contractor route, please have a chat with me afterwards and we can sort of figure out how to do that together. But essentially, there's a lot of things you can do yourself. It just means you have to invest a bit more time. It won't be as fast, but you'll just have to invest that time and that brain matter to go solve it. And it's very much doable. So the first step, I want to encourage you to do this, is we just need to take a step back, all right, to identify our assets. Now I'm going to leave this uh, picture up there on the screen for a bit and, and see if you can recognize uh, the masterpiece because I feel that in finance, we intuitively know what our assets are, even if it is a bit difficult sometimes to grasp like water. But, you know, those assets that we have, they're in the policies we've written they're in the reports we send out, the relationships we've developed, the access to the data we have, and the decision makers. Yeah. And it's all those years of training that we have combined, except with all that whirling mess, we sometimes can't see it. It's like having your face pressed up against a masterpiece. How do you know if it's a masterpiece if your nose is pressed up right against it, as the old saying goes? So I'd be really impressed if any of you get uh, what this uh, masterpiece is when we step back. I did present this once and someone got very close. They got the name of the artist, which is George Chirat. And this is their Sunday en la Grand Jatte from 1884. And it's, I think it's like valued at around $100 million. So quite a valuable painting. Yeah. And again, so the first step is just to step back so we can see all our assets. Now, once you've seen your assets, you can categorize them. Now, I've done it in my way, which is identifying six categories that go support three value disciplines that are being demanded from by our internal and external customers around inside influence and impact. And then those assets also support 12 traits or behaviors, all happen to start with the letter A, but essentially those assets are underpinning the value creation and unlocking value in our organizations. Um, I've also tried to make things a bit easier because when you look at the spelling of those assets and take the first letter of each one, it spells the word assets. So trying to make it as simple as possible. So when you're doing it yourself, either leverage these assets or these names or come up with your own ones, but at least come up with some sort of categorization mechanism. Then the second one is to score that, right? It's to make that intangible value and get an assessment of where we currently are. And you can do that. When we started doing this, we used to use Excel um, to go send out, do with the questionnaires on, get them up and just uh, back and compile them. Uh, then there was things like SurveyMonkey that we were able to use and more lately we developed a web app. There was two sort of thinkings behind this, one to sort of serve current needs in terms of people looking to understand the value creation potential, but also was to take a pulse of our profession across our, the various countries around the world and, and various levels within those organizations and industries so we could sort of see who's doing well in excelling and where we could perhaps do better. So we could benchmark countries and levels against each other. And so far, I nearly had a thousand people do it, which is really awesome stuff because the web app's only been up um, probably probably about six six or so months. So pretty awesome stuff. Um, so look, you can either come up with your own questionnaires, and I'd encourage you if you do, don't make them all positive scoring. Uh, try and encourage some questions where they've got to answer in the negative to get a fuller score. And in sometimes, like in our questionnaire, it's 36 questions. Sometimes the right answer is the middle score. And I include the link for you to go check it out if you are thinking of getting some ideas for your questionnaire as well. Then once you've done the questionnaire, you can sort of represent it on a visual. Now here we've done sort of a heat map approach, uh, red, amber, green, so the RAG status. And this is one we've actually taken from a case study where 
the finance team had been uh, ceased to be relevant anymore because um, the business partners, which were sale, a sales organization, um, rather would go to their ops team to do the reporting and analysis on their business. So to report on things like their bookings results or their discounting or their win rates. Um, typically, finance actually used to do that activity and it was taken off them because they weren't seen to be relevant and able to influence and impact. So that's where we got involved um, deconstructed their strengths and actually this is a common pattern in a lot of organizations as accountants we tend to score very highly on our financial analysis assets our ability to deconstruct an organization into its component value creating parts where we tend to struggle a bit and again it probably comes back because we're guilty of um, you know sitting in our caves a bit is the social intelligence skills these are the things that we tend not to learn on our accounting qualification or courses um, we might tend to come across and enhance them by accident but this is really where we go and get attuned and can adapt to our requests from our internal customers so this is not a surprise um, and it's very variable fix very fixable from an asset efficiency perspective so um, and a key point with doing these steps and a do-it-yourself approach is actually what gets measured gets ma managed even just bringing a little bit of focus to value creation on where we do well and where we can do better can do wonders to actually move the result forward in itself. So there's three things I want to sort of point out and I want to reinforce the word targeted. Right? There's nothing that frustrates me more when actions, well-meaning even if they are, aren't very much targeted. It just feels like a waste of money. Um, there's one organization I came across in Europe and they, they were boasting to me that they spend 200,000 euro a year on Excel training for their staff and finance. And I was thinking, well, that's great, but I imagine most finance staff have some comprehension of Excel. So yes, some will benefit, but some are probably not going to get much in the way of return from it or marginal returns from it compared to others. Where that money might have been better spent in like de you know being deployed on improving our ability to go influence our, uh, our stakeholders. So targeted action is key. So once you know where you can do better, where we can do better, then that's where you probably should put your limited funds. And that's another thing. Um, you know, when there's asset deficiencies, what you tend to find is there's a lot of disengagement and a lot of attrition. So when organizations say, we don't have the budget to fund this, even as a do-it-yourself approach, again, I tend to say, how's that the case? Because if you have an asset deficiency, you must have some room, I hate this word, within your headcount or in terms of team members to go fund it at least temporarily to build some good assets so you won't have this attrition issue going forward. So um, so they're the sort of two frustrations I have, but um, but essentially the fact is, you'll, you, if you find the space, the time to think about this and implement some, some basic questionnaires and some targeted actions, this can go get solved. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter. 
which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.